0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we have a special guest, Matthew Hardman, the Vice President of Technical Sales at Hitachi Vantara. With over 20 years in the tech industry, Matthew is a powerhouse of knowledge and leadership. He's worked with tech giants like Microsoft, LinkedIn, and VMware, and he focuses on developing technical talent in the Asia Pacific region. I've asked him to join us here today to share his story, plus share insights on leveraging hybrid cloud technologies to create new opportunities for businesses. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, my friend?
1: I am great, Daryl. Thank you so much for actually allowing me to be here. It's an incredible opportunity. And yeah, I love the opportunity to be able to go ahead and actually share stories about Asia Pacific and the region we actually live in.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned because obviously the world is coming, becoming more international, obviously. Personally, I've got my money on Asia to be the new economic powerhouse of the world, just uh, however you want to splice it, manufacturing, demographic, population, uh, all that. But before we get into any of that, I want to know, how did you even get into sales and developing people? Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Is this kind of like a, a generational career?
1: Yeah, look, it's I have a really strange background, I think. It's not your most regulated or planned out one. Uh, originally I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was what I wanted to go and do. And and so my parents, my father was originally from England. My mother was from Australia. They met in Papua New Guinea and basically came back to Australia and had myself, my brother, my younger brother and adopted my uh, sister from Korea. The funny thing was that my parents had me, which was obviously the first disappointment, had my brother who was the the (laughs) better looking child. And then my mother really wanted to have a daughter. And and so they adopted from Korea. And so my sister, like when you see North pictures, or south? Sorry?
0: North or South Korea?
1: South okay. Korea. So they originally, the original path for that way was to go ahead and actually adopt from Hong Kong. And the wait list to adopt from Hong Kong was very long. And so somebody suggested to them, have you thought about South Korea? So they checked out South Korea and they adopted a, a child from, from Busan and her name was Sunwa Lee. And so when my parents adopted her, they renamed her to Jade Rhiannon Lee Hardman. And so Jade was precious Oriental, oriental Jewel. Uh, Rhiannon was my father's favorite Fleetwood Mac song. Lee was in honor of her old name and Hardman, her new name. So when you, if you ever look at the, we have pictures of us as a family, it's a very strange mixed up family. Like yeah. you've got Asia, you've got big people, thin athletic people, fat people. It's really bizarre, but- our life was basically following my father. My father worked in the bank and he'd taken on a whole range of different roles. And I followed that sort of enthusiasm. So he he worked in the city, he worked in the country, he worked in the islands of, of Papua New Guinea. We've met incredible people in our history. But the one thing that my father always did, which I, I followed on, I, I never said that you stay in one place too long right, or stay in one role too long, right? And I say don't stay in one place. I've been in Singapore for about 23, 20 years, 20 so years, right? But I've always changed to where there's the next opportunity for growth. But my father would always go ahead and actually say to his customers when he was working for the bank, I don't understand your business. Can you show me how this actually works? And for a lot of people, it was confronting because most people they worked with, they come into their role and their customers, they would just Okay. I, you need to understand what I'm doing as a business and you're my customer, but I provide you a business or a service, but never before had they experienced someone actually being in that position. Really my father was the bank manager. Right, He would go and say, I don't understand how your business works. Can I do it? He did it in the country. He went to one of the farmers and he said, look, I don't understand how a farm works. Can I work on a farm with you for a week? He was shocked. He was absolutely shocked. Why would a bank manager come and do that for a week? And when he did that, he spent the he was there 5 a.m. every morning working, herding sheep, doing all the different things. After that, he had a, an incredible appreciation for the business, but it wasn't just that he learned something. Those farmers took. Yeah. And from there, they shifted their business from one bank to his bank and he grew that because he understood the- them. Exactly. He, he went in there with this attitude of. I need to learn and understand from you, I don't know everything. And so that's something which I've always tried to carry on and say, look, no matter where I go and work, I never make the assumption I know everything. I always ask the questions. And in my history, I've worked for Microsoft twice. I've worked for VMware twice. I've worked for Hitachi Vantara twice. And it doesn't matter the times I've gone back. I know I don't know everything. I ask the question, what does this actually mean? What does acronym stand for? I will sometimes worry that, yeah, sometimes you think about yourself and say, should I ask this question? Ask the question because I'm sure other people in the room don't know it either. And they're too, too scared to ask. So mm-hmm. that's been my, my, my journey. It's been like challenging myself every single time. I should say, I started at the beginning by saying that I I wanted to be a marine biologist. And so when we're living in Papua New Guinea, I used to go scuba diving all the time. So that was incredible. And I wanted that to be my job. And so I went to university for a year and got really frustrated with the, the university system. And dropped out and my mother of all people said to me you did all right on this computer thing why don't you get into computers and i said mom i don't want to be a nerd <laughs> and so fast forward 23 years later cto technology yeah. vendors this is what i do and i absolutely love it so that's the <laughs> journey is on always listen to your mother she knows exactly oh, always
0: listen are. to your mother yeah all yeah. right interview are done always listen to your mom no <laughs> <laughs> So that's a great, that's a great, there's some real lessons in there. I just love that your father's story. What an admirable thing to do to just be humble and lead from below, essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. He, It's an endearing quality. And you don't, like everybody says, never stop learning. You don't learn, you can learn by reading books and watching YouTube videos and all these different things. But the best learning comes from asking the questions, right? Being intellectually curious and saying, I don't really necessarily understand. And and I want to show you that there's an aspect of vulnerability, that there's an aspect of growth. And I think that's an engaging personality. And if you can build those bridges by showing a little bit of that vulnerability, you'll go miles with people. Like mm-hmm. you're not doing it as a trick. You're doing it as a very intentional approach to say, I want to understand you better right. so I can serve you better. That was the learning I got from that so that process from him.
0: I love that. And how does that, let's talk maybe a bit about how that's fit into some of your sales experience, because it sounds like you've been on both sides, so to speak of the aisle, where you've been on the client acquisition side, and then you've also been on the product fulfillment side, delivery. Yeah. Um, can you speak to, let's maybe first talk about the sales role. What were some of your biggest challenges in working in those roles, and how did you overcome them?
1: I think in the in a technology industry one of the big challenges you actually have is a lot of technical concepts are super technical they and they're super complicated and they they're driven by a lot of product development and engineering people and so we tend to get wrapped up in speeds and feeds and complicated technology concepts right and when a great example right now is everybody talking about AI and generative AI and it seems to be that if you want to try and actually get ahead, you start saying things like large language models, Oh yeah. or you start using different acronyms to differentiate yourself. And <clears throat> you're probably not necessarily thinking about the, the outcome. You're just trying to enhance it even more. And actually this, I was thinking about this. I, I think about it a lot because one of the things you talk about at the beginning was the focus on people development. And I see this quite often with technical people. There's almost this sense of imposter syndrome in technical people. And it's really interesting when you interview someone, you see this manifest. What they will do if you ask somebody a, a question, right? Ask them to explain a technical concept. What they will tend to do is try and tell you as much as they can tell you. Not necessarily just enough to get them intellectually curious to move forward and actually have right. a, a further conversation they will tell you as much as they can tell you and even when they stop to try and give you the time to process that they'll jump in and fill with more and they'll give you more facts and more technical things and you know you don't give the the receiver that information enough to be able to process process that and internalize it. When it comes down to a lot of things that we work on, technical concepts, right? And I've worked on consumer products, like I launched Windows 7 in in Singapore. I launched Windows Phone. That was an interesting product experience, Windows Phone. And I've worked on large enterprise technologies like VMware's virtualization platforms, development technologies for Microsoft, a whole range of different things. And I think that the challenge for a sales organization when they're selling technologies tend to go back to what is it the technology actually does, but not necessarily what it actually results in from an experience point of view. And so I spend a lot of my time trying to take these complicated concepts and turn it into something that, okay, could I explain this to my kids or my grandparents Hi. or something like that? So they could walk away and go hey, I get what you're trying to do with that. And so that, that to me is has been the challenge is as, as you get more complicated in the concepts, how do you simplify it to the point where people feel comfortable? You don't ever want somebody in a sales engagement to feel uncomfortable or unsure because you, if they do feel like when you walk out the room and you might've gone, man, I totally nailed it with my presentation and my acronyms and my massive complicated diagrams. It was awesome. And you feel good. The person you're selling to is going, I really don't we, understand what that person yeah, is talking I'm so about. Overwhelmed. We can't invest in this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Building that capability and and getting others to to scale on that, like others to pick that up was certainly a, a big challenge. But I feel like we are getting better now. Like we I think that the the focus on areas over the last maybe 10, 15 years, evangelism, storytelling, like making that an integral part of a technical sales organization is actually helping us get better rather than here's the spec sheet. Let me blow your mind.
0: Right. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I love what you said. I wrote down cause I always, I'm a writer downer. So if I'm looking away, I'm paying attention, but it's I'm, <laughs> I'm writing down. It's not, I'm like, I'm not on my phone or anything. I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer down. I'm a paper and pen guy. Even if I never look at it again, and I wrote down silence is power. And I love how you said that because at least for me, I know I used to really suffer from trying to be, Actually, right before this, I just went through this. I used to always try to be the shiny, you know, dance shiny dancing bear, and I found sales personally was hard on my ego because you get rejected and you take it personally. And and one of the things that I, at least helped me, and and you maybe speak to if you've had similar or different experiences, but I stopped making it about me and my product or service. And started trying to make 80% of the focus on them and the issue and the problem and their needs and all that. And what, and this, and what would a solution yeah. look like? Because for me, when you talk about the explaining the technical components of stuff at that point, it gets simplified because they've told you, Hey, I've got a bucket and it has six holes and this is the way the holes are in. And I need something that can plug all of them, or at least these three. Yeah. And now, when I go into the pitch, I'm just talking about those three holes by the way we also do these other things and i find mm. that it can be a bit harder uh, but you get through the tire kickers faster And what i mean by harder is sometimes people just don't want to answer your questions don't want to i don't want to tell you about what i got going on but then it's almost i feel like it gives you a position of power because uh, i'm keeping my powder dry i haven't mm. shown anything yet because I, I don't know we could do 100 different things so what is it that you need tell me the type of thing so i'm not sure how it works in technical sales, especially enterprise sales. You said you've done consumer. How is consumer sales different than enterprise sales? Is it it very much the same? Are there key critical differences in your opinion?
1: It's not too dissimilar. The mental process might be a little bit different. Like an enterprise, what's interesting about enterprise sales versus consumer sales is a consumer sales, you're typically going to go ahead and actually pull on emotional heartstrings a lot more than you are in an enterprise sale. But you can't, you can't dismiss the the emotional part of an enterprise sale as well. Like there's still, as soon as you have humans, right? Humans will always bring in an emotional aspect to no matter what they're buying, if they're buying it for themselves or they're buying for a a company. Right. But what I tend to see from a, a consumer point of view is that emotional gratification has to be instantaneous. Like you have to be able to, buy something and you get that buzz, right? Either it's through something experiential or it's some sort of status that you're able to achieve by doing so. Like the iPhone's a great example. People go ahead and actually buy the latest iPhone and they can see it and they visually want to have that identity. You've got the latest, you've got the greatest or you've got the folding phone and things like that. But an enterprise one, may not necessarily be as visual, like you're thinking a little bit longer term in terms of, so longer time in terms of returns or ROI as they typically go ahead and actually say what to get out of it. What's something that I was listening to recently, I listened to a lot of McKinsey podcasts. And one of the things I was talking about recently was consumer brands and the impact of sustainability and the projection of sustainability on choices consumers actually make. And this is something that, that we obviously talk about in enterprise as well, right? And so I was looking at that and saying, okay, if in the consumer space, customers will make a, a distinct decision to purchase a product based on their sustainability position, that should also translate into an enterprise sale as well. And so I've tried to change my tag to not just talk about the the things that we do, but what is our impact on the environment and what's our commitment to that and not try not to do it in a way where you would greenwash it. Like you hear people talk about all the time, greenwashing something there. There's actual things that we go ahead and do differently than other vendors. And you want to address those sorts of things. So yes, there are differences, but there's also the, the crossover between the uh, the two areas, right? It is, like I say, consumer products, it's fast, it's instantaneous. You've got to be able to go ahead and actually get the value realized as quickly as possible. Enterprise you can probably stretch it out and say, can I realize a value over three years? But it's got to be very clear and very meticulous in the way you go ahead and mm.
0: talk about that. Mm. That's fa- That's actually fantastic. So you can go in and pitch and be like, I'll make your money in three years. <laughs> yeah. It's got to, it's got, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I, but I, I love what you're saying, and it actually feeds into the research we've done. Because again, small and medium-sized business, We, I think I may have talked about it before. We, I spent 50 grand to hire 10 assistants to help me go through all the academic literature, try mm. to look at what really moves the needle for small and medium-sized businesses. This is back when everyone was arguing about the science. And we uncovered eight critical success factors. And I'll just give them. Those were self-efficacy, market intelligence, strategic planning, marketing strategy, sales strategy and skills money management, business operations, business intelligence, and they all have sub factors. And we drove into the sub factors. And one of the things that actually really surprised me, not, I wasn't, I was surprised. So we'll say that was one of the key factors in the performance of a marketing strategy is actually corporate social responsibility in -hmm. terms of community development, ethical values, and conforming to legal processes. So nobody wants to do business with a company that's knowingly breaking the law. Right, so conforming to legal processes, but the ethical values and the community development. I I spoke to a guy who was really big on ESG and whatever people think about ESG, there are political biases in that bias, uh, biases in that system. Marlboro has a perfect flawless score, and Tesla's got like a B minus or something. How is a cigarette company Chevron has an A plus? How is an oil company that's had these massive oil spills an A plus with ESG? So there's mm-hmm. political things, but the core of it is an attempt to achieve corporate social responsibility. And that's the Mm. same thing. People love that buying water, every bottle of water you buy, we plant a tree, things like that. It is a factor that's shown to improve profitability. And I think this all feeds back into all businesses is one group of people helping another group of people and they do it via a product or service. So talking about,
1: yeah. And I think the important thing is you talk about the ESG thing. It's really interesting. And my one of the personal experiences when I started to really dig into addressing sustainability in terms of what we do today was I was schooled on this one during it was it during the the pitch, I think it was during the pitch I was in Japan and I was presenting to a group of executive customers and I was generically talking about sustainability and what we were doing. And somebody said, so what sustainability are you actually targeting? And I looked at the person sustainability and they said no environmental sustainability social sustainability economic sustainability which one are you actually looking at and that was like the light bulb moment for me like i I went you know what i need to understand this a little bit more like the story we had i know it's a good story on sustainability it obviously targets environmental sustainability and this person gave me feedback afterwards it was fair feedback when you're going talking about sustainability make sure you stipulate very early on what are you really going after from a sustainability point of view? Are you really right. targeting efforts on environmental, on social? Like you talk about the ESG ones, like that's a very comprehensive area yeah. of, of study. And then economic sustainability, even to the point where like we get really complicated on social sustainability, but things like how well do you understand the impact of your supply chain on modern slave labor, right? It's what? like where would I have slave? No one has slaves, really? Yeah. Have you really looked at your supply chain and actually conditions along the whole supply chain? That's the level of insight. If you're really saying that we are delivering on sustainability, you've got to look at all these different angles. And I'm not saying in every company, like big companies you said Chevron and Marlboro and, and Tesla. They have the resources to be able to invest and do the study. But for a small business, you can't necessarily target everything. You certainly want to make good decisions. Yeah. As you start to talk about your impact and sustainability, I think it, it, it's worthwhile for a smaller company to be able to say, look, we're making a investment and a very conscious action to address this aspect of sustainability. And this is what we're going to doing because it's more authentic that way.
0: Yeah. And specificity sells, right? I think that's yeah. a, a key factor. And if you ask someone how to solve a problem and they really weren't the one that solved it, they can't get into the nuts and bolts of it. Yes. And that comes to, almost like you say, the authenticity, which is actually another thing that comes in brand trustworthiness and integrity is a factor of the effectiveness of a marketing strategy. And that to us, the, the key components was transparency, customer focused, unique USP, authenticity, brand consistency, and clear brand uh, purpose and promise. Hmm. So I agree with everything that you're saying. Sorry, this cat came in the window and it's the door shut. Let me go. Let me go let the cat, let the cat. Hold on one second. I'm going to pause so I guess we talked about you talked about making a pitch. Obviously you're dealing internationally as well, different mm. cultures, different cu- countries even. Do you have any tips for anyone who might be starting out or struggling in terms of one getting to make the pitch and then two pitching successfully? Yeah, getting the getting to
1: make the pitch is is super challenging. That's half the half the battle and I've been in a fairly privileged opportunity where most people tend to have those relationships and bring me in and say, Matt, can you come in and talk about the strategy or talk about what we're trying to go ahead and actually do. But you know, when I work for different organizations, and maybe also as well with the experience over time, you start to say, you know what, I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm going to go and start doing things myself. And I reach out to people through LinkedIn, I reach out to people through uh, contacts I already have, just just recently, it was a case where I wanted to go ahead and actually make a pitch to a company about a certain portfolio we're trying to bring to market. And it's a very different set of uh, technologies that we would normally go ahead and actually push. And so I'm looking and thinking to myself, okay, we could go ahead and just talk to the same people we always talk to, but I don't really necessarily believe we're going to get the right level of success. So what do I do? I start to scour what's actually going on. I'm looking on, at people on uh, on LinkedIn, seeing what they're going ahead and actually talking about. I think that LinkedIn has some pretty good tools. Not that I say that because I used to work for them, but I've seen a lot of the tools actually have. <laughs> you did, business. you
0: did. That's right. But, uh,
1: yeah, it's, there are like generally looking at the people that you know through other people and what they're talking about, you start to see what they're doing and you just reach out and say, hey, look, we haven't met before. I'd love to connect with you on this. Like the bold person person, who does that, builds those connections and starts to have those sorts of engagements. But the other thing I think as well is being able to utilize your actual network of people. Like LinkedIn's a network, but there's also people that you know or you might've known through a friend or something like that. And as long as you have the credibility, you present yourself in the right sort of way, people will typically help you out, right? It's not such a a bad thing, right? So I think that's important. The one thing I said to my team recently as well, is just, and I'm coming back to LinkedIn on this, have a look at your profile on LinkedIn today. If anything today, like if I'm meeting somebody for the first time, I will instantly go ahead and actually look at their LinkedIn profile. Even when I'm hiring somebody, I'll look at their resume, but I'll also look at their LinkedIn profile. You might kind of say, why would you bother? So I want to see how they project their persona publicly, right? What is it that they stand for? What is the What are the things that is actually interesting to them? Like that presence online is interesting to me. Um, Being able to use that as a tool to give you some sort of insight and advantage is always helpful. Now, many people who work in vendors like myself probably have more presence and profile online. Customers probably don't tend to have as much, right? Right. Because they just, it's an interesting sort of uh, differentiation. Networks is, is super important making sure your visibility and your profile is super important. I think you've got to invest in that, right? You've got to build your profile. You've got to meet with people, even trying to get out to different events and just walking around and shaking hands. You've got to do those those hard yards and eventually it starts to help you build up. Now, the other part was, how do you pitch? I, I've gone through lots of different ways of trying to think about this, but ultimately the one thing that I keep coming back to is that, you very intentionally have to go with stories. And that's not necessarily a case study. It could be a case study, but how do you tell a story? Like, how do you take it one step uh, further? And I can't remember where the research was. I remember there was research about this, but they said, look, we are conditioned from young in all cultures to get engaged in stories. It doesn't matter if you're from India, from China, from France, from America, Everybody gets told stories, either through performance, art, all these different things, stories, myth, it all all forms a foundation of our beliefs and everything we go ahead and actually do. So stories capture people's attention. Now, you want to be able to make sure that when you go and pitch and engage, you do it in a way you can tell a story, right? Great example of it is watching Shark Tank. Like seeing mm-hmm. the difference in terms of people how to go and present an idea in a very short time frame, but do it in the context of a story. Now, a lot of those people have obviously taken training to go ahead and actually do that, but it's the same thing that you need to be able to go ahead and actually do as well as part of your pitch, yep. right? Yeah, you know, you've got to be able to tell that story. I had a great story where I had a, and I put that in, in context of, of something I did, which led me to a realization and tried to drive that. So the story actually was on this one. I was trying to, at VMware, I was working on some of our automation technologies and I was talking to a a customer. They worked in a hospital, I think they were in Thailand. And me being young and brash, I was like, you need automation because it's operationally awesome and saves you money and and all these different things. And I thought trying to be a smart ass, I would say, you've explained to me that what you typically do with your software development is you build your software, then you deploy it to a test environment and see if it all works. And then after you've done that, you deploy it to your, your production environment, your real-time thing, which is dealing with patients and things like that. And I was being smart about it. And I thought, I said to him, what happens if the environment in your testing environment is a little bit different to the environment in the production environment? And it works in your testing environment. When you deploy it to the production environment, it doesn't work. I'm guessing it's probably going to take you time. You have to roll back and redo it, all, all these different things. And the CIO was sitting there and he's got his arms crossed. He's looking at me and he just looks up and he says, if we get it wrong, people will die. And he just stopped. And the whole room was like, "Bad had choice of words, dead quiet. And I was like, just hadn't thought about it and failing on me. Of course, it's a hospital, right? But he looked at this and he said, so what you're saying is we could actually automate it to ensure that we can deploy our test environments the right way, every time at speed. And that would minimize any disruption we have in a production environment. And I went, and I was still shocked. I'm like, yeah. And he turns to his team and he says, we need to go do this because we can't afford to have people dying. Right. And I was like shocked. It just gave me this whole context. I was thinking one way, that
0: experience. Yeah, like you're worried about the tech and the rollback and all this. He's like, we have lawsuits on our hand, dead bodies to bury <clears throat> Yeah, crying, angry family members. Exactly. And that was the,
1: I tell people that story. I said, this is, find the thing which is really shocking and confronting that actually, like, you can't always be as sensational as that, but that story gets people interested and and they want to engage. Now, there's one last thing I'd actually say. If you can get people on a story, that's great. Because you hook people in, hopefully they're not looking at their phones and WhatsApping while you're trying to pitch. The other thing I've been trying to get people to do especially in one to few scenarios. Like if you're doing a big presentation on stage, you're going to have a presentation, right? right? right. There are some great speakers on TED Talk who can just talk, right? They're, those people are brilliant. I don't even think I'm I'm at that point. But in a room, when you're in a meeting room, and you've got, say, three people from the customer and you're there and you're maybe there with the account executive and things like that. And you go and give, give a presentation for 30, 40 minutes and it's slide after slide. They could be great slides. Like I'm a picker for slides. Like I... If you don't put effort into your slides, I just feel like you haven't put effort in at all. Like people say that the presentation is just a tool to help take the story along. Sure. But still, you want a good looking tool to go ahead and actually do it. But what I've been telling people and trying to demonstrate with them, don't necessarily utilize PowerPoint slides. Try not to go with it in that small format meeting. Use a whiteboard. And very intentionally as you're drawing out the story, you have to practice You can't go this day one and just go, I'm going to go whiteboard this stuff up out of my head. You've got to practice it. But the important thing to practice is very intentionally when you stop as you're drawing and turning to your buyer in the room and saying to them, does this accurately represent what you're experiencing right now? Right? And they might say, yes. Or you can say, hey, could you actually draw for me where you think this actually intersects with what you're trying to go ahead and actually do? It gets that person out of the chair and that naturally starts to move the chemicals around their body. It gets them up on the whiteboard and they start to draw on the whiteboard. Then they're invested, right? And so then you can actually start having this dialogue. So I actually find that in these smaller format presentations, the whiteboard discussion where you turn and ask the person to join you and be part of it is such an incredible sales tool, better than any presentation or story you might go ahead and actually tell. The power of a marker and a whiteboard is incredibly powerful. It's a weapon if you use it. A-
0: I love that because it makes it a collaborative environment now.
1: Absolutely. You got
0: the personalization, the customization. And what's the difference between window shopping and shopping? When someone window shops, they don't touch anything. Yeah. They're not engaged. Exactly. They don't try anything on. But here you, get, you, you give them a sense of ownership. So I, I yeah. really love that. I actually talked to a guy, he's a YouTuber, hundred thousand something followers. And he was saying that he was, actually gave the opposite advice, but at the end, I think you guys both agree on the same point. He said, I used to go and go make these really big, fancy PowerPoints and make sure they were so beautiful net." But then what I realized is that when I do that, they want to show them around and get everyone's opinion. So now all of a sudden, instead of deciding on the deal, they're showing off how beautiful your slides are and feedback. <laughs> because I learned to just go in and just use like the template white slides, just really basic so it doesn't make sense if you're not in the meeting yeah and that's almost like the whiteboard what are they going to do with the whiteboard they're going to take a photo of the whiteboard and they're going to have it doesn't make sense to there so they have to decide whether the project's going to move over or not in that meeting type thing and so he's and also you need to know exactly what if your slide is if your presentation is seven slides like you got to really know the the budget the authority the need the timeline Yeah, so it's kind of like what you're saying like he was just about most people want to go in and razzle dazzle, but really it's just the bare basic and they need to be involved so that way it's almost like an insider group where you if you're not there it won't make sense to you if yeah. that's uh, right like the same thing with their whiteboard you can yeah, no, no, that
1: yeah that that resonates there is there is the idea in terms of saying okay don't give out don't give away too much I I, I think the other part of it is as well is trying to make sure that when you go ahead and actually do these presentations you're not necessarily, put this you I think the other thing I, again I come from more of a technical support background or technical services or technical sales background right so pre-sales and those sorts of things I will never ever say or or, or degrade the role of a sales team like the oh, sales no. team they have such incredibly tough and, no. and stressful jobs like they give up a lot of their salary in the hope of getting a commission based on the sales if I ever I quite often tell my team we don't own the number Our role is to positively influence and impact the number to help make that number. Yes. We have a commission as well, but it's not as much as what a salesperson does. But sometimes you see people feel like they need to go into a presentation and the outcome they actually want, they might say is we want to progress the deal, but many people tend to think, I want that customer to be able to walk away and completely understand what I'm trying to sell. And that's the wrong outcome. Right. right? If you could do that, you would be a, Trillionaire, right? Because if you could teach somebody something in one hour, that's amazing. It's not right. possible. What you have to be able to do is recognize that I want to be able to go in and have an engagement for whatever time you have—the the forty-five minutes—have that engagement with somebody. That when I leave the room, they have become intellectually curious enough to ask the next question or to go ahead and actually pursue the information. Like, don't overthink that you're going to go ahead and actually convince them that everything's done, right? Right. That's just the reality of it, right? And I think even as as an individual, you're gonna feel a lot more personally fulfilled if you start saying to yourself, okay, the outcome of my presentation is to get us to move to the next level, Mm -hmm. not to educate them because that's the the confusion I think people actually make. So everybody has different sets of tools and different sets of processes. I think the outcomes is what we need to really get to.
0: I love that. And I love how you're talking about the process. And we can't mm. ultimately influence the outcome, but all we can do is optimize the process mm. and be a part of that process and understand the processes before us and after us. So that way we can have forward thinking. So what are some of the skills and habits that you think are most important for your staff to improve or develop?
1: Actually, the, the there's I will tell you there's three questions I typically ask anyone I interview and it's, it serves a foundation of what I'd have the expectation on in terms of my teams right so technical teams and i use these same questions no matter what company i work for typically when i interview somebody most of the time they've passed a sort of a technical validation right so they've shown that they understand the concept so if it was working at like a hitachi a lot of stuff that we do is around data management core storage block storage object storage lots of different types of data storage processing all these different things microsoft was a lot of stuff around cloud technologies and those sorts of things but you start to look for sort of fundamentals in technical sales professionals, right? So technical people, right? And there's three areas typically on capability for continual learning, right? That's super important. The ability to articulate the impact you actually have and do it succinctly, right? And in the third area is the ability to think at scale because we're not necessarily in any organizations that have a multitude or plentitude of resources anymore. I think we've seen a lot of these organizations who have actually had to cut resources. And as I continue to talk to people across different companies I've worked for and different colleagues, the continual theme is, man, we just don't have the people. And so you have to sort of think. So going to those three areas, when I ask people in the interview on the first one on learning, I quite often ask them, tell me something that you've actually learned recently, either personally or professionally. Tell me how you learned it and tell me what did you do with that learning? And what I'm looking for there is I've identified something I want to develop and grow myself. I've taken the aptitude or or the approach of how I would go ahead and actually learn. And I'm looking for different channels of learning. Did you, is it just I went to a website? Did I read a book? Did I go to YouTube? Did I watch videos? Did I download the software and do a, a demo for myself? What aspects did I do to build my own learning path? And then finally, how do I actually use that learning to help others? That's what I want to try and see people get to because I also don't want people to feel like my technical capability is my weapon or my ivory tower, right? Because sometimes people tend to treat knowledge as power. Mm. I know this, you don't know this, therefore I have power over you, right? Not all people, it's a very asshole type behavior. Apologies for language, but you know, that... Not wanting to help others and help elevate others and help them be successful, it's, it's not a behavior I like. So I always ask those sorts of questions in, in people. My second question, which tends to freak people out, so you like this one, I give them the scenario where I say, okay, what's your boss's name? And they'll tell me someone. What's their boss's name? This person. How many bosses up do you know? And so i get to this person. So, okay, let's say three or four bosses up. That particular person, I want you to visualize that person. They go, okay. Now, let's imagine you're in a tall building, 40 levels. You're on the top floor and you're going to go downstairs and get yourself a coffee, right? Because you want to go buy a Starbucks or something. You feel like you want something nice. And Starbucks is not cheap, right? So you'd love someone else to actually buy the coffee, but it is what it is. You go in the elevator door, closes. Just as it's about to close, it reopens and in walks that boss's boss, right? It's going to take that elevator two minutes to go from that floor down to the bottom, right? As soon as that door closes, they're going to ask you, hey, what are you working on, right? You have two minutes to explain what you're doing and the impact it has in that organization in the context that that person can understand. And what's really interesting is seeing then how people articulate the impact they actually have inside the organization. Some people go into this, 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 it's a laundry list of things they did. But not once do they actually impact articulate the impact it actually has. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ask that, there's a stress factor in there. Like I say, some people use up the whole t- two minutes, some people go for 30 seconds and they stop. I'm like, okay. Some people hit the market 30 seconds, some people completely miss it. Some people hit the market two minutes, some people completely miss it. The reason I ask the question is not necessarily just to see how do they articulate impact, but it also helps to demonstrate how would they prioritize. Because mm. if you can't articulate the impact on the top things you do, you haven't really prioritized what you're doing. And in organizations we actually work in, when you have so many people that you're working with and so many different priorities, you've got to prioritize. You've got yep. to say no to things. Yep. And yep. Someone who can't articulate the impact on what they're doing probably can't prioritize very well as well. So that's the second question. And, and I literally get my iPhone and I set the timer and they, the buzzer rings. It's very intentionally pressure. The third final way I ask them is is another scenario, but I basically say, look, let's go ahead and actually choose a particular technology. If I give you the challenge to roll this technology capability out to 20 different partners, tell me, walk me through the process of how you do it. And so the idea there is to get somebody to think a little bit beyond about what they individually could do, but how could they empower an ecosystem of people to be able to take something forward? Because if we can actually execute at scale, Ultimately, the the outcome and the returns will be multiplied from that angle. So coming back to it, capability development or self-capability development is super important. Ability to articulate impact and prioritize and ability to scale. Those are the three things I think can actually make someone successful.
0: That's really great. I think that's super powerful. That third one, often I don't have a question that I ask people, but for myself, I always think of the rule of 10,000 how would i do this 10,000 times how would i how would i get generate 10,000 leads how would i respond to 10,000 inquiries how would i collect on 10,000 sales how would i onboard 10,000 customers and i just think that's a really powerful thing for people to think about because it gets you thinking in terms of systems and structures and processes right and the process mm. of baking 5 pies is different than baking 5,000 pies yeah. and if you begin with the end in mind you may not have everything, but you know where you're going as you go, right? And I just, I really like that. That's a really good, powerful uh, question set. Now, I know we're almost up for time and I do want to be respectful for your time. If Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? It's always an
1: ongoing conversation and perhaps we can actually revisit like a, a, the next sort of set of different ideas, but... I guess the the one thing we didn't actually talk about was actually around you want to talk about hybrid cloud. We didn't even get to that detail right, we right, process right. Sort of stuff, right? <laughs> that's cool. I sort of say that's a. I think that's a really super interesting area, and I guess maybe if we did it as a preview for the next session, there's some really interesting trends that are happening right now in this part of the world, spe- specifically in APAC. Right, I mean, you hear a lot of people they want to go ahead and actually move to cloud. What's been interesting when you look at what happens with a lot of organizations, excuse me, a lot of them are actually starting to reassess that motion. And one of the things I saw recently, they talked about executives in Asia Pacific, how many of them were looking at what they would call a a hybrid multi-cloud environment, right? They were saying that something along the lines of about 9% of people they surveyed were interested in that. You go, that's not much. By 20, I think it was, they reckon it's going to be 49% of people want to have this hybrid cloud, hybrid multi-cloud environment. And it far outpaces anything around the world. EMEA, Americas, all these different Mm. things. What's really interesting to me is that what we are seeing is that customers are are really interested in a couple of different things. They're trying to understand cost a lot better and they're recognizing that shifting everything to cloud is as great as it actually sounds. And I can tell you the marketing dollars and the marketing that companies like Google, microsoft amazon all those different ones they're obviously really trying to convince everybody that you need to be in the cloud in fact i I challenge everybody to go present it on big stage and and small stage so tell me why everybody is telling you that for you to be termed to be innovative you have to be in the cloud that to me is crap right Right. you are innovative because you've identified a process you want to make better you are innovative because you've changed the way you engage your customer. You are innovative right. because you've changed the way you do something. It doesn't matter the technology you use or where it runs. It's right. what you do, right? Right. But there are customers today who are now saying, I'm getting charged a lot of money to do this cloud thing. I'm getting charged a lot of money to move around my data. Imagine, I'm- I, I said this to somebody the other day, right? Imagine you taking your kids to kindergarten. Right, you drop your kids off at kindergarten, right? They can walk through the door and you're paying the kindergarten to have your kid for the day. Now, at the end of the day, you go to pick up your kids and they say, Okay, you now have to pay for it, pay us to let your kid out.
0: Right, but, a lot I of mean, people don't realize that, but with the cloud, all the cloud means is someone else's computer. Exactly, that's it. That's and, it. But and they charge, and the big thing they start to feel is that they're saying, Okay, there's this
1: concept of ingress and egress. Ingress is data going in and egress is data coming out. So when you're pulling data out of the cloud, like you might have generated and say, I want to use it internally in my organization, you get charged egress. Now, the question I ask people is like, why does a cloud company not charge you data going in, but charge you data coming
0: out? Right. What is different? It's oh, just pain and disconnect. To-
1: Yeah, it doesn't like if you charge for both. Okay, maybe I'd understand some sort of cost in terms of doing it, but it's not. So, yeah, it's getting really unmanageable. So, a lot of customers now are saying, Hey, I want choice. I don't want to be penalized for having data in someone's cloud. I want to be able to utilize my data across clouds where I want to see the technology being utilized. And I want to have better control. I've got data regulations coming in. I've got a whole range of challenges I've got to go ahead and actually face. The solution to a lot of this is really going to be this hybrid multi-cloud. And so that's really exciting. And like I say, I've started talking a lot about it. I know we're we're running out of time, but like I say, we should probably save it for a deeper conversation. But in APJ, in this part of the world, the rate of of pace in terms of people really assessing what they want to do and how they're utilizing technology to do it it's outpacing everybody else in the world. So I think it's a really exciting place to be able to watch what happens in this hybrid multi-cloud space.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think that's really important. And I think, I am curious, I I have a couple of follow-up questions. So can you give an example for a small business owner where they might use a hybrid multi-cloud scenario?
1: Yeah, if you thought about, it's probably important to understand a definition of of a hybrid cloud first off, right? So a hybrid cloud is, is typically a combination of using your systems and resources inside your organization combined with Hyperscaler's resources. Hyperscaler would be Azure, Google Cloud, things like that. An organization that might do that might have a application running on a server inside their organization, could be a virtual machine, could be a server running on their their platform, and they might be consuming services in Azure to process some sort of data, right? So there's some compute work being done on-premise mm-hmm. and there's some compute work being done in the cloud, right? right? Now, that can sometimes incur that that sort of cost because data might be flowing backwards and forwards and things like that. But what you're doing is you're combining what you have on your on-premises and you're combining it with what you actually have in the cloud from that point of view. Now, a multi-cloud one, it's you don't often typically see a single application do a multi-cloud scenario, but you do see organizations have a multi-cloud strategy, right? right. So it might be from a point of view that if you had an early adopter as a small business, a startup or someone like that, and they wanted to go ahead and actually use um, cloud technologies, 10 years ago, they probably would have said, Hey, you know what? Amazon, right? right? AWS.
0: AWS. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Everyone says AWS is the innovator. Now here's the thing. Fast forward to today. If I said to you, which is the best cloud provider for infrastructure. You still might say AWS. Fine. It depends on the the purpose. Exactly. And that's the point. Now, if I said to you, what's the best infrastructure for AI? If you're a small business and you needed an AI to help you engage with your customers and all those different things, who would you go with? Yeah, You would probably say Azure because of their relationship with open AI, their massive investment. And just last night, even they did a big event where they talked all about Copilot and how that was helping you with presentations and Excel and emails and all these different things, right? Microsoft is very squarely positioning itself as the AI leader. So now you've got a scenario where a company might be saying, oh, a lot of our infrastructure is wrapped up in AWS, but we want to utilize Azure for AI. So we've got a multi-cloud scenario here. Now, that scenario is the best scenario where you start getting into hybrid because the idea would be rather than having all of your data sitting inside AWS and then trying to get Azure to talk to AWS and then getting all that billing and, and moving of data, the data part of it, the stuff, which is most important. You know, every, everybody always says data is the new oil, right? Take the data out of AWS. You leave all the compute and that infrastructure, the apps are there. Right. Take the data out and put that into a co-location. Okay. So there are companies who will actually host your data for you. And by classification by the government and regulators, you own that location. It may not be on your premise, but you own it. So you pay someone else to go ahead and actually host it. Once it's there, you're able to connect that up to all these different providers. And those different providers are ingesting your data, but you're not necessarily moving it back. So you're not getting charged the egress.
0: Can I keep active Listen, paraphrases back? It yeah. almost sounds like a data storage API where now we have a single site where we can host our data but it connects via whatever API to other machines and the data never really leaves the co uh, what say co-location data location but it's being run through various platforms at the same time
1: so yeah you're not exactly
0: so, you, so and again I'm trying to I'm trying to say this back maybe again to help other people so it's not that you have data in AWS now you have to copy paste that over to Asia to be processed. Now you're paying for the data to be in two places at once and yep. you're paying for the transfer in and out or one or the other or both. But instead you're saying, no, my data is going to live here almost like on a blockchain type thing. And then it's going to be accessed as needed and transformed in site location. So when the access is cut off, like the, the process is finished, the data hasn't moved anywhere, but whatever has been added, changed, modified is done. Is that relatively Yeah, much.
1: Yeah, the data will always sort of, data will always move, right? That's unavoidable. Like you need to ingest the data. If you've got a a compute resource in the cloud and you want to work with it, yes, it can point to that thing off-prem, but it's still ingesting and computing it here on the cloud, right? right? But the ingestion, that ingress cost is zero, right? You bring it in and Um, you look at it and you get a result. But you probably, once you've got it in there, you process to get your result. Do you need to bring anything back? You just want to see the result. Right. Right. So in in essence, you can get rid of it, right? The data that you own is your property, you own in that colo. And I can say, you know what? Now I want to use that cloud service. My data is actually here. The here's the really, I'm going to get, trying not to get too geeky on this, but what's really interesting people look at this and they go, yeah, but this can't, like, I need performance. I need this thing to work really fast. And, And if I separate the data from the application in the cloud, then surely I'm going to take a performance hit. Right. It doesn't. In fact, sometimes it works better, which is really weird. And the reason why it works better sometimes because the colos that we actually work with, the co-location companies, they're actually hosting AWS and Azure and Google cloud. They run <laughs> those things in their premises.
0: So it's so not leaving the service. It's yeah. It's, just it's going on to same, it's the same,
1: it's the same data center, the same premises, same network. And so we did a test. We did this in Hong Kong recently because we were showing a customer. We said, What if we took AWS, because everybody knows AWS, take AWS and take an EC2 instance, which is their virtual machine, right? right? right, right. And we're going to put the data in a colo. We'll put it in Equinix here. And Equinix is who we work with. We'll put the data in Equinix. we put in one of our big storage arrays, put it in there. We'll get the EC2 instance running and we'll get it to talk to each other. Just start ingesting the data. And we actually saw that the performance between the EC2 instance to the Colo was exactly the same as running everything in the cloud, like exactly the same. And then in some cases, the numbers were better because it was a direct connect. So some of the things that that Equinix is an incredible company, I talk about it. If you consume uh, cloud resources from your premise and you just generally connect over the internet to the cloud, they refer to the information being transferred like a drunkard walk, right? Because what happens is the request goes from here to this point and then to the cloud. That's just how the, the, right. the networks work. If you have a direct connection, it's like point to point. And so right. what they've been able to do with the uh, Equinix Colo is to be able to do it in such a way that we can actually have that direct connection from our data, which is like high-end performance data uh, storage directly to the computing right. instance, And it works incredibly well.
0: Yeah, you know, so yeah. That's, I imagine that's the, the data thing. security is better too because there's less points of contact. There's less the shorter the chain, the fewer places it can break at the yeah. same time. So I think in some ways it's an improvement in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's, it is really,
1: like I sort of say, it's, the funny thing is I was thinking about this the other day again, because I used to be a developer uh, and I'd still dabble every now and again in, in software, but there was a time when we would go ahead and actually build these decoupled applications where you'd have your database here, you'd have a business layer of logic, and then you'd have a presentation layer like a web app or a windows application and things like that. We used to build these disconnected applications all the time. What we're talking about is just another form of disconnected application. It's just the disconnection is actually a, a geographical location-based one uh, where you'd actually have the data sitting over here in this location, the application component sitting over here. But if we can make those connections. They're secure, they're efficient, they're fast, um, but they're also cost-effective as well.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's actually, uh, we're I'm geeking out here right with you, 100%. A hundred percent. I've got a thing where I've got a membership area with 300 and I think we're over 400 people now in there and our leaderboards are a little slow and it's probably part of this because it's just the thought. Anyways, so I'm with you on it. I'm with you on it. I've got in case use cases running in my head. Matthew, I do want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. If people do want to continue the conversation, if they want to reach out and learn more, what is the best way for them to get in touch?
1: Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn, right? I'm always there checking in. That's like the the main place which I really connect with a lot of different people, that's for sure.
0: Got it. For those that want to check him out, go look up Matthew Hardman, M A T H E W H A R D M A N. Go check him out on LinkedIn. you got the right one if he's with Hitachi Van Vanterra, an Australian Institute of Business. you got the right guy. Again, Matthew, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights, your wealth of experience and geeking out with me a bit on this. Hopefully our listeners, hopefully it's going to help them navigate the future because the future is tech friendly. That's for sure. So thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, buddy. I
1: really appreciate being here. Yeah.